seen uh, the first three plagues uh, being uh, given to both Israel and Egypt. And then by the fourth plague, we find that God separates uh, Israel from Egypt, does not have them partake of the plagues. They don't have to suffer along with the Egyptians. And now we come to the last one. And the last one <coughs> we find again is something now that both Israel and the Egyptians have to participate in. In fact, had the, had the Israelites not been obedient to what God tells them to do, they would have suffered the same plague as the Egyptians. And we find here in uh, chapter 11, as we get started, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence, Altogether, this is a whole different mindset uh, of Pharaoh that God is is telling Moses is going to happen, isn't it? Uh, up until now, even when Moses or when Pharaoh has said, uh, "I'll let you guys go," and then the, the 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 plague is stayed, and then he changes his mind. He's always reluctant. It seems like you always get the sense of uh, reluctance from Pharaoh. Okay, well, if I have to uh, to get rid of this plague, then we'll let him go. This time, God says this plague is going to be so great that Pharaoh is going to thrust you out. He's changing now the hardness of Pharaoh's heart to a desire to get rid of the children of Israel. He wants them to be thrust out of the land. And uh, so quite an interesting thing here. And uh, I'll tell you this, that God has a way of bringing things into our lives to change our hearts, doesn't he? He has a way of getting our attention. And it's amazing to me how many times we have to go through things uh, I was telling somebody here, uh, been about five or six months ago now, there's been some things I've learned in my life that I really wish I would have learned an easier way. Um, I wish it would not have taken that to teach me those things. But sometimes God knows that there's only certain things that will grab our attention enough and help us to realize, hey, you need to learn this and you need to learn it well. And um, there are some reasons other than just trying to get a hold of Pharaoh uh, that God is doing this. Obviously, He's done it to prove Himself to the children of Israel. He's done it to prove Himself to Moses and Aaron. He's done it to prove Himself to Pharaoh himself, who was considered a God king. Um, we see a huge difference. And this I love about this story. Uh, we're going to see it here in just a few moments. But there's been a transition. There's been a change in Moses throughout this ordeal. Have you noticed that? Uh, let's look down a little bit here. The Bible says in verse number, tw- uh, verse number 2, Speak now in the ears of the people, and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, and by the way, that that phrase that the Lord gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians uh, gives an indication that they, uh, because they looked so highly to Pharaoh as a god king, uh, they see Moses now approaching Pharaoh on equal ground pretty much from their perspective. And uh, that they have now respect to the Israelites because they realize that the God of the Israelites certainly, in their in their uh, opinion, is at least equal to the the power of Pharaoh. And in some cases, they believe that it exceeds the power of Pharaoh. And that, again, this is coming from a uh, a pagan worldview, a pagan uh, view of God. And uh, God has a way even of bringing ungodly people to a place of recognizing that He is God. And uh, he does this. He gives them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Verse number 3, Moreover, the man Moses, notice this, was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. 
and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go in into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all thy servants shall come down unto me, and bow themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh, notice this, in a great anger. And uh, so we find here that uh, Moses, somewhere along the line, has found a little bit of boldness, hasn't he? He went from being fearful of going before Pharaoh to standing toe-to-toe and face-to-face with Pharaoh. And um, you, you, have to, you have to ask the question, why is that? Could it be that as Moses saw God's hand at work, Moses' faith was strengthened? Do you think that might be the case? How about in our lives? There are times that we are worried, we, we have concerns about things, there are things that we fail to trust God in as much as we should, and yet the more we see God working, uh, I, I've made this statement before, and I've, I've heard other people make this statement before, when God does something miraculous and supernatural in our lives, we say, okay, why did we ever doubt Him in the first place? And the truth is we do to some degree uh, come into times where we doubt the faithfulness of God, the ability of God to do some things. And yet the more we see His hand at work, the more our faith is strengthened. Now with that principle in mind, let's apply that to the world that we live in today. There certainly is a falling away of people who look at God and say He's the one true God. In, in the unsaved world, and I'll say this, even in the Christian world, We've spent some time talking about the Word of Faith movement, how many uh, men that stand in pulpits as false prophets and false preachers, and they try to indicate that God is um, powerless, that He's weak, and that He has to be given permission, and man has authority over Him to demand Him around. And they, they bring God down into some uh, subhuman level where He's not even as strong as man is. Man is the superior being in their preaching. And uh, they ha- that man has uh, authority and power over God. And the truth is, we are living in a world that is quickly losing its view of God. And uh, we need a-, a group of God's people that see God's hand at work to have their faith strengthened and boldness given to them like Moses to stand toe-to-toe with those that would deny God and say, no, there is a God in heaven. And here He is. Let me show Him to you. And they need to see God at work. I'm convinced that a large reason why a lot of young people and a lot of people that uh, are in the world are denying God is because there's a bunch of Christians who never speak about what God does, who never sometimes even see the things that God does or recognize them for what they are. And uh, we need to be those that proclaim the Word of God. We need to be those that talk about the things of the Lord. And uh, we find here that Moses has had a dramatic change in his personality simply because God has continued to build his faith. God has strengthened him. And verse number 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. 
And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel out of his land. Now, in, in chapter 11, God tells Moses what's going to happen about this, this last plague. He says at midnight, there's going to uh, come a time, I want you to tell Pharaoh about it. And so they tell Pharaoh about it. Nowhere in chapter 11, now just because it's not in here doesn't mean it didn't happen, but we don't find anywhere in chapter 11 that Moses or Aaron, either one, give Pharaoh an indication of the time frame. They do say that about midnight, uh, but then there seems to be, between chapter 11 and chapter 12, a period of time. And that it didn't happen that night, but there was an uncertainty in when it was going to happen. It's interesting because this is such a wonderful picture of uh, those that uh, are saved and uh, that there is a, an uncertainty of the coming of God's judgment. Uh, we live in a day where we don't know when the rapture is going to happen, and I think that that's by design. Uh, God has seemed to do that throughout uh, Scripture. Look with me, if you will, in chapter 12, and we'll see that God gets a little more specific with the children of Israel about the time period, but we'll see that there's more than likely from the time that he stood before Pharaoh in chapter 11 and the time that God tells him about the time frames that he wants him to use, there seems to be a period of time there. Uh, how much is there, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really tell us that. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers. A lamb for a an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the souls Every man, according to his eating, shall make your, your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep and from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the house, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs and with the uh, uh, pertinence. Uh, thereof, and he shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning, ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. 
Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation. And in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. Well, what a wonderful picture of the atoning work of Christ. God lays out this plan, and He's using this to be a, a picture to the nation of Israel of the coming promised Messiah. There's so many things that so vividly and clearly picture the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we get into the verse number 4, the Bible says that, I'm sorry, verse number 3, the Bible says that the tenth day of this month they shall take to them, notice these two words, every man a lamb. Can I tell you this, that when it comes to salvation, we have a God that is a personal Savior. This was not something that was done by the high priest for a lot of people. This was not something that was done by one person for their family. This was something that was done. And every person in that house that had that lamb had to partake of that lamb. They had to eat of it. They had to, they had to take part of that lamb as, the, as their uh, offering. And can I tell you this? That when it comes to salvation, you, you can't have somebody get saved for you. Every person, every person must taste of the lamb of God. Every person must come to the Lord Jesus Christ. There must be a lamb for every person. And notice as we get into this, he says in verse number 4, that the, uh, and if the household uh, be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Boy, isn't that a wonderful thing. He's to be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. For four days they watch this lamb, and they make sure that it is a lamb that is spotless, a lamb without blemish. It's interesting, we get closer to Christmas, we'll be teaching again on the Tower of the Flock and how significant that is. How that the Lamb of God was born in a place where the Levitical priest that watched over the sacrificial lambs had to see his birth, and he was inspected of the chief shepherd and found worthy. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger at the same place where the sacrificial lambs were. And we find that as we turn over, if you will, take your Bibles to First Peter chapter number 1, that quite often in Scripture the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as one without spot and without blemish. Aren't we glad of that? There's only one person in the world that's ever lived without sin in their life, without spot and without blemish. In First Peter chapter number 1, look with me, if you will, down to verse number... Uh, let's go down to verse number 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold 
from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world, God knew before He ever created man that redemption's plan was going to have to happen. He was, a, he was a lamb, the Bible says he was a sacrifice that was without spot and without blemish. If you will, turn over to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 9. I love the book of Hebrews. There's a book many years ago that I read uh, called The Way into the Holiest. If you ever get an opportunity to read it, uh, it it's a tremendous book on the book of Hebrews. I loved it and opened some things into my heart and in my mind that uh, I'd never really given much thought to in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 9, if you will, and look with me in verse number 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Notice this, he says in verse 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. God told Moses, He said, I want you to do this. I want you to take this lamb. You're to watch him for four days. You're to sacrifice him. You're to roast him in a certain way. You're to have unleavened bread. You're to have bitter herbs with it. And He says, this meal, this feast that we're going to be instituting here is to be an annual feast. It's something that is supposed to be done forever. It's supposed to be something that's done in perpetuity for the nation of Israel to be reminded of the, the uh, coming Messiah. This was a picture that was supposed to be done in remembrance of, of the, uh, the uh, atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were to do this from time to time to remember. They chose, uh, God chose to have it done at a specific time each year that they were supposed to observe this. We get to the New Testament and the Lord Jesus, just before His crucifixion meets with his disciples in the upper room. He did so because he wanted to observe Passover with them. He wanted to observe that particular uh, thing that had been so established for many, many years. And he establishes something new with his disciples, doesn't he? You'll notice that the Lord in the time that he spent with his disciples just shortly before his death, that the Lord does not partake of the Passover meal. But he institutes a new, uh, a new thing that is, we practice today. We call it the Lord's Supper. We don't practice Passover anymore, but we practice the Lord's Supper. If you will, turn with me in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> verse, chapter number 11. Verse number 23, Paul writes, For I have received of the Lord that which I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is due in remembrance of me. Every Israelite, they would take that lamb and they would sacrifice it for everyone in that house. And everyone in that household had to partake of that lamb. 
it's interesting to me, so oftentimes, we had a discussion the other night, we were talking about the phrase that we use that uh, someone needs to accept Christ as their Savior. I, I understand that's the common phraseology we use, but it's not really a scriptural phraseology. The truth of the matter is, when the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was, was given at Calvary, the blood was taken to heaven and was sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven. And who had to accept the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who, who, who had to be accepting of that? Man didn't have to accept it. God had to accept it as a payment for sin. If you remember back to the story of the uh, sacrifices that Cain and Abel had, God accepted one's sacrifice, but He didn't accept the other one, did He? When the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, the blood was shed and taken to the mercy seat and sprinkled on the altar in heaven, on the mercy seat in heaven. God was the one, the holy, just God, that had to have a penalty for sin, that had to have a payment for sin. He was the one that had to say, this payment is acceptable for my justice. What is man's responsibility? Man's responsibility is simply to put their trust, their faith, in that payment for their sin. Could you imagine if these, in, these Israelites had heard what Moses said, they'd seen all these other plagues, and one of the men of the house said, you know, I, don't, I really don't think God's going to kill our firstborn. I'm not going to take that blood and put it over the doorpost. They didn't put their faith in what God had said. They would have lost their firstborn, wouldn't they? How many people that know of the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they do not trust it, they do not put their faith in it, for salvation. They, they, they still depend upon their good works. You say, even, even Baptist people, Brother Greg? Yes, even Baptist people many times will catch themselves depending on their good works. They'll do their good works because they think they have to. That if they don't do their good works, that maybe God may, uh, God may take that away from them. Can I tell you this? That penalty was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews. It says once for all. Aren't you glad of that? It's done once for all. Look with me, if you will, back to Hebrews chapter number 9. He says this, neither, verse number, chapter number 12, neither by the blood of calves and goats, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. They find that there was a necessary death to take place for the redemption of man. Look over, if you will, in verse number 26. Let's back up verse number 25. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others, 
For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of this world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Notice this. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. There was a time in the wanderings of the Israelites in the Old Testament. There were vipers that were sent in and were killing many of the children of Israel. And God told Moses to take a serpent and fashion a serpent and raise it up on a pole in the midst of the nation of Israel. And he said all they have to do is look upon it. Look and live. They just simply had to look to that and say that's what we're trusting, that God has done something to give us deliverance. It's an act of faith. It's an act of putting their trust in what God had said He would do, He would do. We find that the, the price for sin was paid. Jesus paid it once. It doesn't have to be done over and over and over again. I heard a song years ago, and the, the, the gist of the song was this, does he still feel the nails every time I fail? Do I hear them cry crucify again? Can I tell you this, my Savior suffered one time. Is he disappointed when we sin? Oh, I'm certain of that. But we don't nail him afresh to the cross every time we sin. He's not constantly in a state of being crucified. He was crucified once for all. He put His blood on the mercy seat. And it was acceptable to God. Hey man, aren't you glad of that? It satisfied God's justice on our behalf. And all man has to do is look to Him. To say, Lord, I can't save myself. There's nothing I can do to save myself. I can't live good enough. I can't belong to the right church. I can't be born to the right family. I can't have enough wealth and riches. There's nothing that can be done. And if I am to be saved, Father, it's got to be through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and it alone. We've got to trust that. We've got to put our faith in that. And that's how we get saved. So many times we get this idea that there's some action on our part that has to be done. Can I tell you this? It's simply look and live. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have your faith in Him. And live. Let's go back to Numbers chapter number 11 now. Or chapter number 12. I'm sorry, Numbers. Exodus chapter number 12, excuse me. I want you to notice as we go down to verse number 6 that they've kept it for four days. And then it is interesting that when the Lord Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem just before His crucifixion that the folks there recognized Him as the Lamb of God. They chose Him, actually, if you will think of it in those terms, as they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They looked at Him as the Messiah, and He had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and He was watched for several days there. And fulfilled that prophecy. And we find in verse number 7, And they shall take uh, of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the house, wherein they shall eat it. 
And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Can I tell you this? The unleavened bread is significant of bread that does not have um, fermentation to it or yeast in it, if you will. And if you understand the Scripture, every time you find reference to leaven in bread, it's always uh, significant of sin in man's life. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, the Lord Jesus Christ said, as He spoke of the scribes and the Pharisees. And uh, the fact that we are to, uh, as we come to the Lord's table and having the Lord's Supper, we're to use unleavened bread. A significance of the purity of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this in verse number 9, Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and uh, with the uh, pertinence thereof. And he shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. That which remaineth of it until the morning he shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded. I love this. You shall eat it with your loins girded, your feet uh, shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. If we understand what happens here, and we'll see it next week as we get into chapter number, the end of chapter number 12, first part of chapter 13, and we start seeing the nation of Israel begin their wilderness wanderings, that when this, this event happened, Pharaoh, Pharaoh comes to Moses right away. I mean immediately. He says, okay, go. I, I don't want you here. Get out of the country. And those, those folks left. But can I tell you this, we find a wonderful picture here. That these folks, at the moment they got saved, from that moment on, they were ready to leave. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a long period of drawn out time. And when we get saved, there ought to be something that, that takes a change or place in our lives. Where we decide we're not going to follow after sin any longer. And we don't have to do that to be saved. But we ought, we ought to have that new nature in us. We ought to have that conscience inside of us that causes us to live and, and desire to live holy, to desire to live righteous. And it ought to be something that takes place pretty quickly. It ought to be something that takes place ready. I've heard other people mention this and say about this, that as Christians, from the moment we get saved, we ought to be ready for Christ's return. Notice this, he says, as he gets to verse number 11, he says, And thus shall ye eat with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. There's not time to waste. The Lord's going to return one of these days. We're going to be out of this world. We're going to leave Egypt, if you will, so to speak, and go to heaven. And we need to be ready. We need to be doing all that we can. Verse number 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, Yes, all the gods of Israel. Boy, I think that's interesting. There were a large number of gods that Egypt... Uh, did I say gods of Israel? Gods of Egypt. There was a large number of gods that Egypt served. And in this one, in this one plague alone, even though he used other plagues to, to deal with different gods of Egypt, in this one plague alone, he says this, that he will execute judgment and he will be against all the gods of Egypt, for he said, I am the Lord. And the token of the blood shall be a token, that shall be you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you, and I shall smite the land of Egypt. It's interesting to me that when the Lord told these Israelites to sprinkle the blood on the door, 
he talks first about the families, making sure that their family is inside the house. But it talks about those that whoever would come into the house. There, there, it's interesting if we come back and we look at verse number, uh, well, let's go back to verse number 4. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to him unto his house take, next unto his house, take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. God allowed for others to come into the house. I think that there were some Egyptians that came into this place. We certainly know that a few plagues ago that when Moses gave Pharaoh the plague and said this is going to happen unless you put all your cattle indoors, there were a number of Pharaoh's servants that said, you know what, we're going to put ours indoors. There were some that were starting to have favor with the Israelites. They were starting to realize the God of the Israelites was the one true God. And I believe that God even allowed all the way back then for there to be an opportunity for even Gentiles to partake of this. We certainly know that's true in the New Testament, but I believe that it was even back in the Old Testament. I believe that all the way back here in Exodus, God made a way for those that would still see Him as uh, the one true God to be able to escape the uh, plague of the death of the death angel coming over Egypt and that they were able to go into the houses of an, Egypt, uh, of an Israelite and be covered by the blood, just like the Israelites. Just like the Israelites. He says this, When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you. Can I tell you this? We find over and over in Scripture the fact that when we get saved, that we will not endure the wrath of God. With that in mind, it helps us to understand these end times that when this tribulation period that the Bible speaks of comes, and it's talking about God executing judgment and wrath upon this world, can I tell you this, if no other reason than the fact that God has promised that we will not see His judgment, we will not see His wrath upon us, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. When He sees the blood, it will pass over us. He delivered them from the wrath and the judgment. Can I tell you this, that when it comes to God's people, He'll deliver us from the wrath and from the judgment. We won't have to go through part of the tribulation. We won't have to go through all of the tribulation. We're going to be raptured out of here before it ever happens. But that's why we ought to be shod with shoes on our feet and cloaks on ready to go. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. I can't feel at home here in this world anymore. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. How about you? Uh, I'll tell you, it's exciting as we read about what Christ has done for us. To be able to see how it's so pictured in the Old Testament, so clearly pictured. And, uh, boy, what a joy to our hearts. We don't, we don't celebrate the Passover anymore. Uh, years ago, uh, we had a Passover Seder here at the church. A fellow came in to demonstrate it, and it was nice to see. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the church uh, bringing somebody in to show how the process worked, because there's so much symbolism, there's so much picture in it of what God has done for us. Boy, what, it'll bless your heart, I promise you. I've, I've sat through a few of them. It's been a blessing to be there. But can I tell you this? We don't have to practice the Passover anymore, because we don't have to rely upon the blood of goats and lambs and, and bulls and calves. We now rely upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed once and for all. And what a joy it is to our hearts and our lives. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. And Father, we do thank you for the sacrifice that was given on Calvary. Lord, what a joy it is to our hearts. 
we take time to look at these things of the Passover and the significance of what you've uh, done both in the Old Testament and in the New. Lord, we're very grateful this morning that because of the blood of Calvary we are saved, not because of our good works or our deeds, but because of what you have done. We're thankful that that blood has covered us, that when the judging and the wrath and the justice of a holy God seeks for the payment of the iniquity and the sin that has been done in our life, it sees the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful for that. Dismiss us now with your blessings. We pray that you'll bless the service to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.